Welcome to the sermon cast from King Road Church. It's our desire that God uses this message to bring you closer to Him. If you'd like to pray with someone, speak with one of our pastors, or if you're looking for more resources, please go to kingroad.ca, scroll down on the homepage, and fill out the Reach Out fillable. Thanks for joining us. Enjoy the message. Please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4. We're going to be continuing in our series in Matthew this morning. Well, the, the book, The Lord of the Rings, is very well known and has been a popular book and a favorite book for, I mean, millions of people around the world for the last, I mean, 60, almost 70 years ago. It was sometime like 1954, I think, when it was first published uh, by J.R.R. Tolkien. And uh, the, the story, if you aren't familiar with it, um, there was also a, a series of movies in the early 2000s, about 20 years ago. It was fantastic. My family and I, we actually watched the whole series, uh, three movies, once a year. And uh, the, in the, the, the books are, um, if you're unfamiliar with the story, basically it's about this band of of characters that get together, and they need to, the, the goal of the, of the book is that they can destroy the ring of power, and the ring of power is, is a gold ring that was forged in the fires of Mount Doom by the, dork, by the dark lord Sauron. So just hearing that, right? Doesn't that make you want to read it? The, 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 it's by the, the, the Dark Lord Sauron in the, the fires of Mount Doom. I mean, this sounds like very important, right? Anyway, the book is a, a bunch of characters that come together from all over the globe, and uh, it's, a, it's a fantasy world, so you have all sorts of, um, you have elves, and you have dwarves, and you have all sorts of people that uh, come together from all these different places to go and work towards this mission of destroying the ring. But the thing is, every time it comes into contact with one of these people, they think that, you know, I'm a man of good character. I'm going to make sure I destroy this thing. And then as soon as they grab it, well, it's full of beauty and, and the Dark Lord Sauron has put all of his evil into this ring. And so the ring itself has a will and it's pulling them away. It's pulling them towards the will of the ring rather than towards their mission of destroying it. So everybody always falls to the, the will of the ring, and it falls, the ring falls, the, the mission of it ends up falling to a, a humble little character called a hobbit, and his name is Frodo. And Frodo and the other hobbits are very insignificant creatures in the world. Most people in, the, in that world kind of don't even know they exist. Yet, here they are in the, the most important uh, mission that, the, that their world had ever seen, and the hobbits are thrust in the middle of it, and they're actually the ones who are playing such a massive role. So, um, J.R.R. Tolkien is a, uh, he, he was a Christian, actually, and, and as you read Lord of the Rings, there's all sorts of Christian allegory kind of weaved in and out. It, he's a little different than C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis will do an allegory and have, like, Aslan equals Jesus, right? But um, Tolkien's a bit different. He, he has characters resembling uh, traits or characteristics of Jesus throughout, kind of coming and going. And so what you've got is this whole group of people, including these hobbits, that all have a special role to play in this grand story, this epic story. 
in order to destroy the ring of power. And I think one, that's one of the themes that, that Tolkien's trying to bring in, is to show that even for those of us who feel like maybe we're insignificant, we're not important, but even for us, like the hobbits, we have a role to play. All of us as Christians in God's kingdom, in God's grand story, have an important role to play. And that's the big idea for today's sermon is that every believer has an important role to play in God's story. You're going to see that as you go into the text today. You're going to see, as we get into it, we're going to see that John has a role to play, that Isaiah had a role to play in prepping for Jesus' ministry. But now today, we also have an important role to play. So the three points for today's message, number one, a ministry fulfilled, number two, a ministry promised, and number three, a ministry started. All right, so a ministry fulfilled, point one, and we're going to start Matthew chapter four and verse 12. Now, when he heard that John had been arrested, now he being Jesus, now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. So if, you were, if you've read the passage before this, or if you tuned into our message from last week, um, you will remember that Jesus had just spent 40 days and 40 nights facing intense testing from the devil in the desert. And so he's come out of that, and now he hears about John's arrest. We don't know how much time is between that. Matthew doesn't give us he, uh, a time frame. He doesn't tell us if this was days or, or the day he got back or what. We don't know. Matthew doesn't think it's important to tell us that. But he tells us that when he gets back, now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. So Jesus comes back from the testing, hears that John's arrested, and moves off into Galilee. Now, if you're a first century Jew, uh, or the majority of Matthew's original audience, you would have heard this and been like, Galilee? Really? Jesus, what are you doing going to Galilee? Don't you know Galilee is unclean? Like Galilee of the Gentiles, it's called. It's, it's, it's a place that is, is not pure. It doesn't have the religious center. It doesn't have the temple it's a mixture of, I mean, there's Samaritans up there, there's Galileans, there's Greeks up there. Jesus, are you sure this is the place? Do you know they eat pork up there? They, they have ribs and ham and, and, I mean, we hear it tastes good, but we're never going to taste it. You know, there's a guy up there named, named Elmer who makes a great barbecue and we hear is good. And we're super thankful for Elmer, by the way, that he makes this barbecue because we all love ribs and ham now, don't we? Uh, but in that time, these Jews are going, no, that's not kosher. That's against the law. That's unclean. We don't eat that stuff. And that whole area, they raise pigs. You, you don't, Jesus, you shouldn't be going up there. It's kind of what the original audience would have been thinking. But you see, Galilee was, uh, was a place that was full of, it was a, a multicultural place. It was, a, even in terms of religions, because of the influence of the, of the Greek world around it, uh, there would have been a lot of different languages. There would have been um, a lot of different people uh, and different influences coming from all over the place. There was even a phrase, according to some historians back then, that the phrase said, um, 
the road, the road to Galilee leads everywhere. The road to Judea leads, leads nowhere. So the Jews think, oh, you know, everything. I mean, Jerusalem, Judea, everything. That's where everything's at, and that's where Jesus should go. But the rest of the world look, kind of looks at Judea as like this outpost. Uh, Roman soldiers hated. They didn't want to be posted there. Pilate himself, apparently, uh, that was like the last choice. He was already in trouble with, um, according to some historians, he was already in trouble with the, with the Roman Empire. And they, they said, you know, we're casting you out to Judea, Jerusalem. Get out of our face, kind of a thing. So to the Jews, Jerusalem's important. The rest of the world, they see it as very unimportant. But Galilee, lots of trade routes going in and out. Uh, the, the number of towns and villages up there were, was quite a few. And in these villages, according to the ancient historian Josephus, the, the smallest village had up to 15,000 people in it. So you can imagine there's a lot of people in that area. So when you contrast John's ministry with Jesus' ministry, John went out to the wilderness, he went out to the River Jordan, and he baptized people, and he expected people to come to him. He expected people to come out of the cities, the Jews to leave, to hear about what he was doing, to come to him to be baptized. Jesus, though, Jesus goes to the people. Jesus goes into the city, goes into Galilee, Galilee, um, because it was along these major trade routes, places like Nazareth and Capernaum had Jews and Gentiles alike within them. So it was a place for, for Jesus to go where he could start his ministry. Yes, primarily to the Jews, but in that area, a lot of people would have been hearing his message, witnessing the miracles he would start performing. So while Jesus' ministry was just about to begin in Galilee, and we have the excitement of that, for us as Christians, we read this and we're like, yeah, here we go. It's about, we're getting into the meat of the book of Matthew, into the gospel. We're going to hear what Jesus is going to teach next. And it gets exciting, but for, for John's ministry, it had been fulfilled. And that's kind of how life goes, right? It, life goes through seasons, there's times that, you know, things are going really good, but then it comes for a time for that particular event or that particular time of life to be done. Um, often my phone will give me, uh, you know, pop-ups of um, memories of, uh, and it's Google Photos that does this. Google Photos gives me a little pop-up that gives me, you know, this day back in 2016 or this day back in 2013 and I'll see pictures of us in, as a family when we were either living in Florida or when we were living in Squamish and our kids are little and cute and making crazy videos and um, running around and, and having fun at, whether it's at Disney World or uh, up in Whistler and I look back on those times and I just go oh man those times were sweet Oh, how I'd love to hold those kids as they were so small again. I would love to rock them to sleep again. And those times were awesome and powerful in, in our lives and sweet and all of that good stuff. But then that time has passed away. And now I look at my kids and I'm like, these times are awesome. I get to witness them growing up. I get to witness them starting to go to university and choosing the direction in life they're going to take. I get to see them serving in ministry and leading youth and serving in worship and all of these different things. So this time's awesome too. 
It's just seasons that our lives go through, and ministry seasons go through, or ministry goes through seasons as well. Even Ecclesiastes uh, talks about this, there being seasons for things. Ecclesiastes 3, verses 1 and 2. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. You see, John the Baptist's ministry had gone through its season of planting, and it's over. He had done his work, he had prepared the way for the Messiah, and now the Messiah is there to move on and move forward with his ministry. John actually acknowledges this in the Gospel of John, chapter 3, when he says that his disciples come to him and they say, what, like, what are we going to do? All, all these people are going to Jesus now. They're not coming to us. And, and John says, that's good, actually, because I must decrease. He must increase. I, John, must decrease. My ministry must decrease. Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, his ministry must increase. And that should be the goal in all of our ministries, that, that at some point we pull back, we decrease, so that Christ can increase. Tim Keller is a well-known author and speaker who many of you probably have known. You've probably read some of his books like uh, The Prodigal God or The Reason for God or Every Good Endeavor. Uh, these are great books which, which, uh, are, are, that I highly recommend to anybody who wants to read them. But Tim Keller, um, Aaron and I were just talking the other day about how Tim Keller wasn't the lead pastor of Redeemer Church in New York City anymore. Um, Tim Keller planted Redeemer in the early 90s. He went into New York City, into Manhattan, planting in a place where everybody was like, this is, this is ministry suicide, Tim. Don't go, into, don't go into Manhattan. Churches don't survive there. New York's done with Christianity. But Tim had a heart for the city. He had a call to the city to, to go and to plant there and to minister to the people, to meet them where they were at. He believed that you could present the gospel in a way that people who thought that they were above it or, or too intellectual for it, he believed that God could still reach them. And so he went. He planted the church. And what do you know, after 25 years, the church multiplied into three campuses, over 5,000 regular attendees. And so in 2016, when Tim Keller decided to resign as the lead pastor, people asked him, Tim, what are you doing? I'm like, yeah, you're, you're technically retirement age at 65 or 66 or whatever. But Tim, why are you, why are you doing this? Look at how this has grown. Your, your name is just getting bigger. People are just starting to tune in more. We have more and more people coming here, Tim. Why are you pulling back now? And he said, well, this, the reason I'm pulling back is the goal is to not be a megachurch. So here's what, what he did. Instead of multiplying more and more campuses and having his face on more and more screens, he felt and he believed, along with the elders of their church, that the best way to reach more people was to make these campuses become individual churches with their own lead pastors, with their own group of leadership and their own elders, their own ministries to their own little neighborhoods, and that each of those churches should then be involved in church planting. Each of them actually, each of those three campuses have now been tasked with planting each of them, three more churches. So that would be a total of 12 churches that would be created out of this whole thing. 
You see, Tim's idea was that he must decrease so Christ could increase. He would decrease so that not just some other man would come in and take his place and now be the talking head on the screen, but, but he would decrease so that the ministry of the gospel would go forth through more and more people into more and more areas, more and more pockets of New York, and the gospel could be spread. Tim's ministry had been fulfilled, and it was time for him to decrease and for Christ to increase. So again, that's the goal for ministry, that we decrease, that Christ increases. So ministries go through seasons where it's been super effective for a certain number of months or years or decades even, but then all of a sudden it's time for somebody to step back. And so we all need to be thinking, how can Christ increase through my ministry? Whether you're a pastor, whether you are a youth leader, whether you are a Sunday school teacher, an usher, a sound technician, whatever your role is within the church, or even as a missionary, if you're out sharing the gospel, what happens when all of a sudden you can't do it anymore? Because if this past year has taught us anything, it's that we are not in control. We are not in control of our own lives. We don't know what's going to come tomorrow. We don't know how many of us will be able to be part of this service next week or watching online next week. So what are you doing if you, by, either by your choice or by the Lord's choice, decrease? What are you doing so that Christ can increase even when you're done? It's an important question to ask. It's something we should all be asking ourselves. Who will step in when you can't do it anymore? Or how many people have you trained up to step in so that that, in, that ministry actually can be multiplied, can increase for the glory of God? Because eventually, all of our ministries, mine, Edgar's, Aaron's, Heights. All of your pastors, all of, all of the people serving here, eventually our roles will be fulfilled and somebody needs to come in. Eventually all our ministries will be fulfilled, just like John's. So, okay, point number two, let's move on to that. Uh, a ministry promised. Uh, these next few verses in Matthew, he quotes directly from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. So starting verse 13, And leaving Nazareth, he and went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. So to get the full uh, grasp kind of of what this means, it would be good to know a little bit of context of what Isaiah wrote and, and the time frame and the context of when he was living and why he wrote this. So, so the next, I'm going to quote, I'm going to read a quote from the ESV Study Bible. Um, if you have, or if you don't have a study Bible, you should get one. 
Um, especially, I know a lot of older people, you guys probably have one already, but maybe teenagers or kids, you don't have a study Bible yet. Uh, the ESV study Bible is a fantastic one. It's my favorite. Uh, you can get them on Amazon or at uh, House of James locally here too. So ESV study Bible is great. And this is what, in their introduction to Isaiah, this is what they have to say. Isaiah announces God's surprising plan of grace and glory for his rebellious people and indeed for the world. God had promised Abraham that through his descendants, the world would be blessed. And that promise is in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. God had promised David that his throne would lead the world into salvation. And that's found in 2 Samuel chapter 7. But by Isaiah's time, the descendants of Abraham and many members of the dynasty of David no longer trusted the promises of God aligning themselves instead with the promises and the fears of this false world. So that was the, the darkness that when you read in this passage that uh, those dwelling in the region of shadow of death, the people dwelling in darkness, this is the kind of culture they were living in. Yes, the, the nation of Israel was still there, but they had gone through a division. Now there was a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And even their kings and all of their, many of their leaders and many of their people, vast majority of the place had turned into a pagan nation, worshiping false gods, believing in the promises that these false gods were making rather than in the promises of Yahweh. And Isaiah was a prophet coming to them, calling them to repent, calling them to look at who Yahweh truly is. And in this passage, he is actually trying to give hope to the remnant of Israelites that still worship God, that still worship Yahweh. He's saying to them, listen, God's still at work. I know things are dark right now. I know the Assyrians are coming in and they have us under siege. They're going to take us off into captivity, all those things. I know that. I know it's dark. It's terrible. But God is still working. God's still working, and he's going to send somebody that's going to be a light in the darkness. He's going to send somebody that's going to bring hope and bring joy again to our people. This is the hope that Isaiah's trying to give to those who are reading this in his time. This is the hope that Matthew's trying to give to his original audience because he's saying, listen, look at what Isaiah said, that God is still working, and now Jesus is here. Jesus is the light that's going up into the darkness. God is still working, people, Matthew's saying. And by going to Galilee of the Gentiles, it says, Jesus is going to the nations, as that promise to Abraham was. That the, the promise was that Abraham's seed would bless all nations, not just the nation of Israel, but all nations. And so what you've got is Jesus going up to Galilee of the Gentiles, the word Gentiles in Greek, ethnos, where we get our word ethnicity from, it means nations. Galilee of the nations is where Jesus went. Starting to fulfill the promise that God had said would come through Abraham. So Isaiah, Matthew, both are saying God hasn't stopped working. He's still working. And I'm saying that to you today as well. God is still working. 
I don't know what your year has been like. Some people over the last year have gone like, well, it's actually been pretty good. But when I look at things online and uh, I've seen some just comments that people are making when I hear from through friends uh, the way that seniors have been affected in this last year, um, particularly those in, in, in old folks' homes that aren't allowed to see family, those who, are, who need to be in full-time care but aren't allowed to visit. It's been a dark year. For those who have businesses that are struggling, who have lost their job because in their sector hasn't been deemed essential, it's been dark. And I know that there's people in our church who are feeling like they're in a dark place. But I want to say to you, God is still working. God is still working. If you need to know how he's still working, uh, spend some time looking at missionary reports. Sign up and um, read about the, the way God is working through the Hedines down in um, Papua New Guinea. Or, or contact any one of our missionaries and find out what God is doing and has done through their ministry this year. So the reports that came out of 2020 in, in the missionary reports were amazing. God is still at work in a lot of places in the world. And, and honestly, I think if you look in your life, I think you can see how he's working there as well. Even within our own church, we've, we've had uh, reports of, um, of the way that God is working. When, when we announced that we were going to do baptisms on Easter Sunday, uh, we've had a number of people contact us about being baptized and talking about how God has been working in their lives and that they're like, yes, I'm ready to take this step of baptism. So we're looking forward to that. And on Easter, we're, we're actually, we probably have enough people that we're actually going to do the testimonies on Good Friday and then do the baptisms on Sunday because if we did them all on Sunday, it would just be way too long of a service. So you, you think about that. Like God is working in people's lives. I know this past year has seemed dark, but God is working in people's lives. Even in terms of Alpha, which we're starting next week, Edgar put Alpha, or the fact that we're doing Alpha and that we're going to host it, he put that on Alpha's website. What do you know? Some random people who we've never met before contact us and say, yeah, we're interested in learning a little more about who Jesus is. God had been working in these people's lives so that they felt compelled to go to Alpha's website and contact King Road Church about Jesus. Isn't that exciting? God is still at work. And again, even if you look on your own life and if you think about it, and if you think about all the ways that, you just, that, that we tend to take God for granted in our lives, God is working in you too. He's provided for you. He's maybe brought you new friends and family or, or, or reconnected you through technology with people that you haven't talked in a while. He's led you to pray for others. And even if you're going through, the God, through, through hard things, God is working on you, refining you, cleansing you, leading you in sanctification. molding you more and more into the image of Christ. He keeps, God is keeping his promises with you. He's staying with you. So don't lose hope. Don't dwell on the darkness. Dwell on the goodness. 
Dwell on the fact that the light has come, that he is shining into the darkness of your life, and draw near to him. Draw near to your friends, too. Go and talk. If, if, you're, if there's dark things happening around you, come talk to us as your pastors. Talk to your friends, your family, somebody who you feel comfortable with, and let us know how you're doing so we can spend time praying with you because we aren't made to be alone. As much as this past year, everybody tells you, be alone. You aren't meant to be alone. You are meant to be with others. We are meant to live in community. It's a big reason why the church is called to be the church. To be there for each other. Ephesians 2, 8 to 10 talks about how we've been saved by faith not by our own works, but for good works. And this is another thing that uh, the way that God is working in us, um, he, he keeps, keeps his promises to us and he has important work for us to do, just like he had for John and Isaiah to do. He does have important work for us as well. So Ephesians 2, 8 to 10, for by grace you've been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should, work, or we should walk in them. God's working in and has work for each and every one of you. You might think you're insignificant and unimportant, but that's not true. In God's kingdom, you are incredibly important, and he has work for you. I can't tell you what that is. I, I don't know every detail of your life or where you're at, but I can't tell you what that work is. But what I can tell you is that God has placed you where you are in such a time as this to be effective for him, to be working for him. Granted, the, the call for some people is to move away and to be a missionary overseas and to be a paid vocational minister of some kind. Yes, that's the call of some people. But for the vast majority of Christians, it is for us to actually be working in the job that he's placed us in and to be asking him on a daily basis, Lord, how will you use me today? How can I show my love for you and my love for my neighbor in the place where I'm at? John worked for God where he placed him. Isaiah worked for God where he placed him. And that's what you and I need to do as well. So don't worry about tomorrow, where God's going to put you tomorrow or next week or next year. Think about today. How can you work for God today? Because a part of, of that getting out of that darkness or not dwelling on the darkness is not just sitting there and, and wondering about what God's going to do, but it's getting out there and acting on his behalf for him, for his kingdom, for the furtherment of the gospel. All right, point number three, a ministry started. The last verse for today, verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So Matthew shows us that Jesus begins to preach in the same way that John did, by saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. If you look back when John started and when, when Jesus started, they say the exact same thing, except for Jesus to say it. Well, as the original audience, you would have seen a lot more weight to Jesus saying it. This is God's son. This is the Messiah. He's the promised one. 
And he's saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the original audience would have thought, would have heard this and been like, that means it's on our doorstep. The fullness of God's kingdom, the Messiah is coming. That means judgment's coming. And it's coming now. But God kept working in his mercy. And as we know, now here we are 2,000 years later, we know that Christ's coming is going to be in two advents. The first one, to preach the good news and to die for our sins. The second coming, to bring judgment on the unrepentant. To wipe away Satan's sin and death forever. So when you look at Jesus' ministry and how it started, he didn't start by saying, hey guys, give you a pat on the back, I just want to be your friend. Hey guys, just, you know, when you hear me teach, just kind of add it to the other things you already hear in life. Just, just kind of take some of what I have to say as good advice. I just want to be your buddy. That's not the message that Jesus came to preach. He came to preach repentance. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. He begins by acknowledging the bad news, that there are things that we do actually need to repent of. You see, the good news of Jesus Christ isn't good news unless we understand the bad news. And the bad news is that we are broken, sinful, rebels against God. And that's the bad news. And that's the news that the world hates to hear. The world hears that, they plug their ears, and they run out of the room because they're like, don't tell me that I'm wrong. Don't tell me that I'm sinful. Don't tell me I can't follow the way I want to follow because... That is what I feel like doing. They want to be autonomous over their own lives, and they don't want to acknowledge that there is a God in heaven who actually creates, who actually has created them, and who actually creates the rules of what it means to be good and righteous and to follow Jesus. You see, I think so much of our uh, Christian subculture that we find ourselves in, honestly, uh, a lot of the time, is it's weird. And I say it's weird, the Christian subculture, because even though us, we, we stand in it and we go to House of James and we see all the, the verses on the walls and we see the bookmarks and the, the Bible verses on cups taken out of context, we see that and we all think, yeah, this is normal. But people in the world look at that and they go, man, that is weird. They do. They look at that, the, the little subculture that we have that uh, creates, that pushes Hallmark to create a plush Jesus. And they go, man, those Christians are kind of weird. And, and the, 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 the type of Christianity that kind of comes out of that is this kind of feel-goodism. Just, just Jesus is there to just be your, be your friend, to be cuddly, to be warm. They have all the pictures of him with his, his soft, you know, the soft lighting on his face, and he's cradling a lamb. And Jesus is tender. Don't get me wrong. He is, but he's not just tender. Like C.S. Lewis says of Aslan, um, is he good? Yes. But is he safe? No. He's not safe. Because there's an element of power, there's an element of truth and justice that Jesus has, and that's what the world doesn't like to hear. This is why they hate the Christian message, because the Christian message says, we're sinful, and there's things that we have to own up to, and we have to acknowledge that we aren't holy, that only God is holy. And that's the message that the world doesn't want to hear. 
They don't even consider the bad news, so the good news can't be good news to them. Unless the Holy Spirit does a work and opens their heart and their minds and opens their eyes to what God's word is. If he shows up and shows them the truth of God's word and illuminates it, illuminates scripture to them as they hear it or read it, then all of a sudden the good news makes sense because they understand the bad news. So the good news that God in his grace has saved sinners is only good news if you acknowledge that you either are or were lost in your sin. We were lost in our sin, and the amazing news is that he, even though we were lost in our sin, he chose to pursue us. He chose to come and live a perfect life that we couldn't live. He chose to die for us, and he's chosen to send his spirit to renew us and to be within us and to lead us, to regenerate our hearts to hearts that want to follow him and to forgive us of our sins. That's the good news. And if you believe that, you're his. Isn't that amazing? If you believe that, if you believe that he has done that work and that he has done that for you, you're his. He has claimed you. And there's nothing that you can do to lose that. If the Holy Spirit has done that work in you, you are his. And if you are his... Yeah, he has work for you to do. And there's nothing better. There's nothing better in life, nothing that brings more joy and more peace than living our lives in a way, in whatever job we're in, whatever vocation we have, in a way that serves the Lord Jesus day in and day out. I'm going to close with this passage from Philippians chapter 3, which talks about the greatness of knowing the Lord. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Knowing Jesus, working for him, living for him, there's nothing better. Let me pray. Father, it is glorious to know you, it is glorious to be known by you. Lord, the fact that we have been saved, the fact that you pursued us is sometimes a mind-boggling thought when we think back on our own lives and we think about the depth of our sins and, and the, all the different things that we've done and all the, the ways that we have sinned against others and against you. Yet, Lord, you chose to pursue us, to chase us down. You chase down the lost sheep and bring them back into the fold. And once they're in the fold, Lord, you don't let us go. And I thank you that we can have assurance of our salvation. I thank you that, Lord, you are doing that work in our hearts and our minds. And for those that are listening that have doubts, Lord, I pray that they would contact us as pastors or contact good, trusted friends and talk about, talk about their doubts. 
talk about the difficult things that are going on in life because, Lord, yeah, we aren't meant to be alone. So I thank you for all the different ministries that you have going through our church and through all the people that are in our church, through our missionaries, Lord. Would you continue to use them that you, Lord Jesus, may increase and that we may decrease. May you be glorified in all we do, Lord Jesus. In your name, amen.